Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Episode 3, Time is Short and the Water Rises. Just imagine, in the midst of a very wide river, a lone tree stands half-submerged in 20 feet of water. Next to the tree trunk, a small brown face, surrounded by a collar of red fur, emerges from the water. It's a bedraggled howler monkey, struggling to swim to safety. With one thin arm over another, she climbs her way up the tree and clings, limbs and tail, to a bare branch. What's happened to her jungle? It's gone, flooded. There are no other trees, no bushes, no leaves to eat, no buds or flowers, no nuts, no food anywhere. And where are all the others in her troop? She howls a call to them. But there is no answer. Frightened and starving, the monkey slowly rotates her head looking for land which she cannot reach. What she sees but doesn't comprehend is the cause of the flood, the Afabaka Dam. The year is 1964. The location is Suriname, South America. At this time, Suriname is still a colony of the Netherlands. Independence won't come for another 11 years. Just two years before our story begins, Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America, introduces the first pull-tab aluminum can. The breweries love it, as do the customers, and a transformative new industry is launched. Because the process demands intensive mining of bauxite for aluminum and massive electricity for smelting the ore, Alcoa turns to Suralco, its mining subsidiary in Suriname, to build a hydroelectric dam across the nearly 300-mile-long Suriname River. When completed, this Brocopondo Reservoir will become one of the largest reservoirs in the world. The dam closes on February 1, 1964, and the water behind the dam has already begun to form a vast, spreading lake which will inundate everything behind it, people and animals, for nearly 900 square miles. The Suriname government must relocate some 6,000 Saramacas in over 40 villages located in the flood zone. The Saramacas are the most populous segment of the greater Maroon society. Maroons are descended from Africans who were seized from their native lands in the 1600s, transported to Suriname and elsewhere as slaves, and forced to work on the sugar, coffee, cocoa, and cotton plantations. By the 1700s, many had rebelled and escaped into the primeval rainforest, where they set up villages along the Suriname River. Punishment for recaptured slaves was horrendous, including torture unto death as a deterrent to others seeking freedom. Those who evaded recapture lived independently out of reach of the plantation owners for the next 200 years, until Alcoa contracts to build the dam. Suriname Commissioner of the Brocopondo District, Dr. Jan Mikkels, is tasked to effect the relocation of the Saramarcas from their homes to what are called transmigration camps. But there is no government plan to do anything for the thousands of jungle animals who cannot swim to safety and will surely die. However, Mikkels is also the secretary of the Suriname Humane Society. 
Concerned for the animals in peril as the dam closes, Mickles sends pleas to all other humane societies for assistance. His letter lands on the desk of the president of the Massachusetts Society for Protection of Animals, Dr. Eric Hansen. In Mickles' letter, he outlines the urgent problem of the jungle animals, ending with the words, time is short and the water rises. Dr. Hansen immediately coordinates with the newly formed International Society for the Protection of Animals, ISPA, whose Boston office is in the same building as the MSPCA. Dr. Carlton Buttrick, the ISPA president, and Dr. Hansen decide to dispatch someone to assess the situation in Suriname and, if possible, conduct a rescue of the animals. Who, they deliberate, would be the most likely candidate? No one has experience in such a jungle rescue project in the most difficult, hot, and humid tropical terrain. They settle on MSPC agent 24-year-old John Walsh. Walsh has been with the MSPCA for over five years, has worked in the veterinary hospital there, been trained in capturing and tranquilizing domestic animals, and is smart and determined. Plus, he's handled both venomous and non-venomous snakes, something he'd be likely to encounter in the jungle. When John is called into Dr. Hansen's office, he finds the MSPCA president, quote, sitting at his desk, rocking slightly in his swivel chair, studying a paper. As John remembers it, Dr. Hansen said, Sit down, John. As he read the paper, he reached up characteristically, smoothed his white mustache, and touched the earpiece of his glasses. He looked up. How would you like to go to Suriname? Great, John answers. Where? After reading Mickle's letter to John, Hansen walks to the wall and pulls down a world map. He points to a smudge on the northeast shoulder of South America, nestled between French Guiana and Guiana. On the old map, it still reads Dutch Guiana. As John takes all this in, he wonders aloud about the Bushmaster snake. Quote, they call it the cobra of the Western world, John writes. It's said to be the only snake in the Americas that attacks without being provoked. And it's a very poisonous one. You're not God, Walsh, Hansen answers. If we go into this project, you're to save everything, every living creature. Less than a month later, John lands in the capital city of Paramaribo. The first thing he notices, after the vibrant colors and the many dialects, is the fact that there are no chimneys. A curiosity to Walsh, who has barely been out of New England in its frozen winters. After assessing the logistics of mounting a rescue project in the flood zone of the rainforest, John approaches the challenge with enthusiasm, confident he can accomplish the job with the skills and experience he's developed as an MSPCA agent, as well as his own innate abilities. But while he's wrangled dogs, cats, and farm animals, he's never caught or tranquilized jungle animals. He's never managed such a large-scale project, nor can he speak any of the languages of Suriname, particularly the colloquial Taki-Taki or Saramakan. In truth, very little has prepared him for this monumental mission. In the minds of his superiors, the real question is not so much whether Walsh will save the animals, but whether he will survive at all. Yet the animals are dying, and there is no one else to send. Contrary to all expectations, Walsh finds an immediate affinity for his new environment. Thinking of boyhood tales of adventure, he writes, I love the jungle. I love to lie at night in the cocoon of a hammock and listen to the forest pulse, to the frogs and nightbirds and insects throbbing all around me. I like to sit at the base of a hundred-foot palm and watch an agouti nibble a fern or a red brocket deer drink from a brook. But then I was in love with the jungle long before I saw it. The rescue project is named Operation Guamba, Operation Jungle Animals, 
and with Commissioner Mickle's help, John goes about hiring a crew of Saramacas to work with him. The first man he hires is a Saramaca, Willem Anaset Panza, whom everyone calls Wimpy, a short, muscular man with pierced earlobes, proud and dignified. Wimpy is 15 years older than Walsh. He was to become, John writes, my foreman, my cohort, and soon, in Suriname, my best friend. As Mickles explains to Wimpy and Talkie Talkie what this lanky young Bostonian wants to do, the Saramaca looks askance at his new employer. Mickles confides to John in English, I'm afraid he thinks you're a little crazy, letting the animals go instead of eating them. The next man to join the project is a friend of Wimpy's from the same village, Simon Amania, known as Syme. He has an amazing physique, John thinks as they shake hands, and that, quote, here is a man who could wrestle a tapir into a cage without too much trouble. It is also apparent that these two friends share an amused skepticism at the young American's unlikely intention. These are the first men John has ever hired, in Suriname, Boston, or anywhere. But through pure luck, John writes, they were both excellent. Both were to stay with me through the whole project. More hires follow quickly, and John receives the advice of an American friend living in Suriname to interest the men in working with him rather than for him. John immediately decides that, in his words, first, I wouldn't ask the men to do anything I wouldn't do, and second, I'd have to surpass them in courage to gain their respect. John's initial job is to set up a base camp on an island. As the water rises, the camps will be relocated to higher and higher ground, farther and farther away from the dam. Commissioner Mickles assigns a government worker, Rob de Brun, to serve as a liaison between them and initially help with the translation as he speaks talkie-talkie, Dutch, English, and some Hindustani. Walsh quickly learns to communicate with the Saramakas in Takitaki and Saramakan, but never does learn Dutch. Before getting underway, John teaches the men how to use catch-all poles to snare the animals out of the trees and in the water, which they reach by motorized dugout canoes. He sets up various teams to capture the animals and to feed and maintain them until their release. Several months in, Walsh writes in his report back to Boston, Finally, we're beginning to understand what capturing animals in the jungle is all about. We've pretty well worked out which equipment is useful and which is burdensome. We know what kind of animal to expect on what kind of island, and the spirit of men couldn't be higher. They believe that with the equipment and with my direction, we can catch any animal in the jungle. And you know what? I'm beginning to believe it myself. Over time, they become so proficient in capturing and relocating animals that the project garners headlines in the worldwide media. Queen Juliana and Prince Bernard of the Netherlands come to visit the jungle camp, as do a parade of journalists. On his national TV show, 20th Century, Walter Cronkite presents a documentary on Operation Gomba, filmed by famed wildlife photographer Hope Ryden. Newspapers and magazines, including Life, National Geographic, Newsweek, and Time, as well as other international periodicals, feature stories on the dramatic rescue. However, by mid-project, conditions begin to change. Funded solely by charitable donations, money for the rescue is running out, and John cannot pay his men. The water behind the dam is rising faster, and they must work harder and longer to get to the animals. Then the rainy season comes, rusting the equipment, hindering their work, bringing disease. John writes, The rain continued through the fall into what I used to know as winter, and the humidity never dropped, 
The dampness never abated. The musty, moldy smell never disappeared. Our clothes began to rot. And then I developed a tropical fungus. I'd scratch and a layer of skin would come off. Problems that were minor during the dry season grew gigantic during the endless rain. The vampire bats, always bothersome, suddenly became infuriating. Simple troubles connected with getting a drink of water seemed to grow enormous, and dysentery was a constant nuisance. We kept working through the rainy season, he writes, but it was hard, strenuous, discouraging. By then, the Saramacas wanted to go home, so John decides to give some of them a vacation in advance of the new year, while a small crew stays on to continue the rescue work. Sometime around then, John writes, my chronic diarrhea developed into something else. Throbbing headache, aching joints, sore muscles, the nausea, vomiting, chills, and fever finally send him into town to see the doctor. He is immediately hospitalized. It's dengue fever, a mosquito-borne disease, sometimes called breakbone fever from the severe joint pains. There is, at this time, no vaccine and no specific treatment regimen other than rest and hydration, although rarely fatal. The recovery period can be difficult and subject to relapse. But after several days, John feels much better and is ready to resume work. And then he relapses. I was as sick as ever, with a temperature of 103 degrees, but with an added curlicue, a rash over my entire body. My spleen was enlarged, too. It takes a total of three weeks to get better. Meanwhile, John passes his 25th birthday in the hospital. Three weeks away from camp seems like an eternity. Three weeks since John sent the men home to their villages. Would they come back? He truly doesn't know, and he is worried. They had all been pretty discouraged during the rainy season. During the hard-working dawn-to-dusk months on the project, the men are clawed and bitten during the animal captures. They suffer stings and sores from fleas, ticks, mosquitoes, driver ants, wasps, vampire bats. They get cuts and bites from the piranha in the water, get parasites, worms, and dysentery, and subsist, as John does, on a steady diet of rice and salted pigtails. Pigtails and rice. Why would they come back? Leaving the hospital, no one shows up to take John back to camp. So he catches a ride in a dugout from one of the Saramacas who work at the dam. His overwhelming fear is that he'll find the camp empty. And then what will he do? Start over? As the dugout approaches the entrance to the camp, John writes, I saw Tony Aconda, he's one of the team, caulking a dugout with tar. When he saw me, he bellowed, and from up on the hill, the call was repeated, and whooping and shouting, the guys came bouncing down the hill. Of the 37 men who left, 31 came back. So along with the steadfast Wimpy and Syme, John and the team carry on sometimes without pay for long periods of time. The project isn't government-funded. It's paid for, in the main, by individual donations. And there are times when there is no money. Back in Boston, fundraiser Bob Smith does everything he can to increase donations. Of the many corporations he solicits for assistance, only one contributes anything to the project, and that's a total of five cases of dog food. Smith calls every donor on record to ask for help. One of the heartwarming examples of support comes from school children across America, particularly through the Weekly Reader, a newspaper that augments classroom curricula. Youngsters send small amounts of money to adopt a wild animal, which significantly helps the project to go on. Among the rescued animals is a dog 
John finds stranded on the top of a roof of a submerged village. Too far from land and with nowhere to go, the dog has been there for more than 20 days, eating insects and whatever floats by. From his dugout canoe, John says, I saw her from 50 yards away, a small brown creature half sitting, half lying along the ridge pole of a submerged hut. I saw she was dying from hunger. She didn't move at first. Then I said to her, Hey there, Bikidagu, which means little dog in Saramakan, and her ears pricked forward. She was too weak to stand. Picky's full name came to be, according to John's crew, and I am approximating here, Picky Dagu Fuye Fufuni Mi Young Sunny Ba, which means that little dog of yours is stealing my food again. Boss! After the project is over, John brings her home to live the rest of her life with him, and then us, and Picky becomes the unofficial co-host of his PBS TV show Walsh's Animals and has her very own fan club. John lives in the jungle for a period of 18 months. By the end, he and his company of Saramakas have successfully rescued and relocated 9,737 animals of 30 species, from sloths and brocket deer to armadillos, jaguar, snakes, including bushmasters, anteaters, and 497 red howler monkeys. The full story of Operation Guamba is described in the 1967 book by John Walsh with Robert Gannon, appropriately titled in homage to Jan Nichols, Time is Short and the Water Rises. Sadly, it's out of print now, but at the time it was translated into seven languages, became a bestseller, and was ultimately condensed in Reader's Digest. John went on with his lifelong career in animal protection, becoming the International Projects Director for Animals in Disaster in the Western Hemisphere, as ISPA morphed into WISPA, the World Society for the Protection of Animals, and currently WAP, World Animal Protection. He conducted a similar animal rescue project called Operation Noah II with a team of Kunas, the indigenous people of Panama, during the construction of the Bayano hydroelectric dam. And from that project, he brought home another tough little jungle dog that he rescued, named Bayano, nicknamed Buzzsaw, who also lived with us until the end of her life. Not only did John rescue animals in natural disasters, such as earthquakes in Peru and Japan, but also in war zones, such as the conflict in Bosnia-Herzegovina and the First Gulf War. Nova televised an hour-long special filmed by Alma Taft called Saddam's War on Wildlife about John's role during the oil spill along the coast of Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. There have been many notable events in John Walsh's career, including monitoring the Canadian seal hunt, being among the first American representatives for animal protection at the International Whaling Commission meetings, helping to write the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Over a 50-year dedication to professional animal protection, there are really too many accomplishments to enumerate. Although retired now, John will always continue his efforts on behalf of animals. As for the displaced Saramaka villages, what of them? As one might expect, forced migration away from their villages did not go that well. Andrew Westall, in his 2008 book, The River Bones, depicts a population of Saramakas unadapted to life in an urban environment in Paramaribo, exposed to drugs and trapped by unemployment. After independence in 1975, Suriname went through a turbulent time in a series of military coups. Then, from 1986 to 1992, the Maroons in the interior, near the border of Suriname and French Guiana, initiated an anti-government rebellion. 
it ended in a treaty with the Maroons, ceding to the government many rights to their land, minerals, and other natural resources. Post-Civil War life for the defeated Maroons has reportedly been a descent into many of the societal ills that come from poverty, lack of adequate education, and poor medical care. In June of 2006, a long and fascinating case was brought by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights for reparations to 12 Saramaka clans against the Republic of Suriname. It was argued before the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, citing the significant damage done in every aspect of their lives from the building of the dam. In a groundbreaking ruling, the court decided that Suriname had violated the property rights of the Saramakas and other tribal people by granting concessions on tribal territory for logging and mining. It ordered the Suriname government to cease granting these concessions and to compensate the tribes for damage caused. To date, not all of the court's directives have been complied with. However, the ruling has upheld the rights of indigenous people whose cases are now being argued legally throughout the world. What, in the end, did Operation Guamba accomplish? First and foremost, some 10,000 animals who would have perished were saved and relocated. As Dr. Carlton Buttrick, then president of ISPA, wrote in the foreword to John's book, Operation Guamba was the largest and probably the most dangerous animal rescue project ever attempted, and it had proved to be mission possible. The other achievement is less tangible. As Commissioner Mickles told a New York Times reporter regarding the sentimental impulse to save animals, Quote, people say that only old ladies would give money for a project to save the animals. And yet, you know what Aboy Kani, the Grahman of the Saramakas, that's the chief of all the villages along the Suriname River, said to me, we used to sit around at night and talk about many things. He said he felt that God didn't intend for the animals to die. And that is a very remarkable thing to say, because to him and all the Saramakas, the word guamba, means not only animals, but food. And you certainly can't accuse Abwaikani of being sentimental. The end. Well, not quite. The headquarters of World Animal Protection are still in London, but the U.S. offices have moved from Boston to New York. The MSPCA, however, is still located in Boston, where John did all of his training. If you'd like to view some actual footage of Operation Guamba, as shown on Walter Cronkite's program, you can follow the show link at the end of this podcast or go to YouTube and enter Operation Guamba. The title will be in Spanish, but the program is in English. Please be advised that 50 years ago in Suriname, the Saramacas, indeed all the Maroons, were called Bush Negroes. You will hear that in the documentary. The term was, of course, colonial, not unlike here in the United States. Fortunately, it is no longer used. And if you'd like to learn about an animal rescue project in the wake of the destructive 1997 volcanic eruption on the island of Montserrat, you will find a riveting description of that effort by Sarah Schweitzer on the website Truly Adventurous. You will also find a link to that show in the show notes to this podcast. I hope you'll return next month to hear episode four, titled Life Upon the Wicked Stage. If you like this podcast... Please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com. <laughs>